This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by SAS. SAS is the leader in analytics. Through innovative software and services, SAS empowers and inspires customers around the world to transform data into intelligence. SAS gives you the power to know. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Friday, December 7th, The Washington Post brought together top government officials, health policy experts, patient advocates, and medical professionals for a series of discussions about the opioid crisis. Speakers discussed new proposals aimed at combating the epidemic, provided solutions for addressing disparities in access to treatment, and examined the impact of drugs on communities throughout the country. In this segment, experts look at the impact of the opioid crisis on communities large and small and the toll the epidemic has taken on individuals and families. Speakers offer perspectives on access to treatment, racial and economic disparities, addiction programs for prison populations, and promising new prevention models. Let's listen. So welcome everyone. I'm Katie Zesma. I'm a national reporter for the Washington Post and I'm delighted and honored to welcome my guests who are all leaders on the front lines of combating the opioid crisis, which is the worst addiction epidemic this country has ever seen. So we have Tracy Green, who's an epidemiologist and the deputy director of the Injury Prevention Research Center at Boston Medical Center. Dr. Roger Mitchell, the chief medical examiner of the District of Columbia, who's an expert on the social determinants of the opioid crisis from his perspective on the ground here in the district. Regina LaBelle, a distinguished scholar and director for the Addiction and Public Policy Initiative at the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown. She's also chief of staff um, at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy under President Obama. And Tom Sinan, who is the chief of police in Newtown, Ohio. Tom has worked with addicts in his community's prisons. He's co-founder of the Hamilton County Heroin Coalition, a group that provides countywide leadership and solutions to address the heroin and opiate epidemic immediately and in the long term. And as a reminder to everyone that you can tweet your questions, please tweet your questions. Let us know uh, what you want to know using the hashtag postlive. So let's get started. Um, you know, this is a panel about being in the front lines of the opioid crisis. So we obviously want to know what's happening. So Tom, what does this epidemic look like in Hamilton County? Kind of what, what do you see every day on the ground? And, um, you know, what's happening to try to make things better? We'll give you a little background. I'm a police chief of a very small town, about 3,000 people, 11 miles east of downtown Cincinnati. I've been there for going on 26 years, but in my 21 years, I watched an entire family die from addiction. Mother from abusing prescription pills and alcohol. Youngest, youngest brother was shot and killed by crack cocaine. Oldest brother overdosed on heroin, and then the last brother overdosed on heroin. Entire generation gone. They have kids. Those kids are now being raised by their grandparents. Me, this small town, impacted by three generations. So that is the bad part of it. But what it did, it kind of was a catalyst for us to change and for us in law enforcement to say, wait a minute, this is beyond us. We need to reach out to some other experts and we need to work together. And that was the formation of the Hamilton County Heroin Coalition. Everything from prevention, local elected officials, state, federal, uh, prevention harm. I, I tell people my best friend is now the health commissioner. Four or five years ago I didn't even know what a health commissioner was, but we work together and we're putting Narcan on the street. We're changing how we do this, how we look at this addiction. We're changing how we view and deal with it, which is really important and I'm glad that law enforcement are some of the first ones to step up and say we need to change. 
And Tracy, you work in both Boston and Rhode Island, and I know that in Rhode Island you're doing some interesting things in terms of partnering with, um, you know, uh, pharmacies and other places to try to get medication-assisted treatment into the hands of people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I think for um, fentanyl's brought a lot of horror mm -hmm. um, into New England in particular, which has always been a place where opioid use disorder has been um, a serious problem. But it also has brought hope and new new partnerships, new collaborations with law enforcement, and uh, an important recalibration of the care that we provide. Um, and so for medications for addiction treatment, which are the evidence-based life-saving medications that we need, um, we understood from fentanyl we needed them in more places. And so one of the things we learned is um, that uh, the incarceration is a strong connection for fentanyl and um, the importance of focusing on criminal justice populations and giving people uh, a pathway for hope. Um, so thinking about correctional systems as a place to provide medications for addiction treatment, but also when they leave, we need a place in the community for people to go. Uh, we can ramp up treatment with providers, prescribers, community health systems, um, but we also need new partnerships. And one way that we've been innovating is thinking about pharmacies. So we've recently invited um, partnerships with um, Genoa Pharmacy um, to think about providing medication maintenance medications, specifically buprenorphine and naltrexone, in the pharmacy, and that's been amazing and transformative, um, and also an, a simple pathway for our criminal justice system to um, have a, another partner in the community there. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so important to reach people when they're in jail and when they're in prison, and to get you know to get them um, addiction treatment when they're there? Why it's important to do that at that at that moment, you know, before they come back out, um, in, you know, onto the streets. I'm an epidemiologist and I studied drug overdose um, for 20 years looking at these patterns. And worldwide, nationally, and in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, every state, we see a very, very strong connection between um, formerly incarcerated populations and risk of overdose, some of the highest risk uh, in, of mortality within even a short period of time, two weeks, 153 times more likely to die of a drug overdose um, for folks who are leaving incarceration. So this is an opportunity for huge change. Um, medications for addiction treatment in an incarceration setting will have an enormous benefit. Um, so that was one of the things that um, is so important because the change in tolerance for people uh, who have not been <coughs> using an opioid for a long time, their bodies change and um, when they leave and may return to use, they have, uh, they suffer an overdose very quickly. Um, with fentanyl, it's even faster and more lethal. Um, so it was even more important to put medications and evidence-based life-saving medication behind the walls. So that's what we did. And um, we saw a 61% reduction in mortality in six months by creating a state-based system. Um, this was profound and is really not seen in public health or pretty much anywhere um, that we can do, make some enormous change. Some. And, um, Dr. Mitchell, I want to talk to you about here in the district. You know, fentanyl has has really um, been decimating the district. And you know, um, you know, a lot of people look back to the war on drugs and the crack cocaine epidemic of the '80s, when you know people, typically young black men, were put in jail for using drugs. Now, with this opioid epidemic, the focus has been on treatment. You know, and as someone who's here in the district, which saw some of the worst effects of the war on drugs, and is now seeing huge numbers of people die from fentanyl, can you talk about the differences between the two epidemics and kind of what you're seeing on the ground right now, and how um, you know uh, as you know, urban areas are responding to it slightly differently than um, than rural areas are. No, I, I appreciate that. Um, back in 2014, we had 83 opioid-related deaths in the district. And remember, our population has just grown to 700,000. 
in 2017, we had 279 uh, deaths due to opioid-related uh, or substance use disorder with opioids. Um, what's important to, to note is that about 80 to 90 percent of our opioid-related deaths have fentanyl on board. Fentanyl is the culprit um, throughout the country. And why is it the culprit here in the district is our deaths are a little bit different than the rest of the country. These are 50 to 60-year-old black men. These are men that are chronic users, that have substance use disorder, that have the disease of substance use disorder. And now you add <coughs> fentanyl, which is 50 to 100 times more potent than um, regular heroin. Um, th there's no way to titrate that. Um, and so we continue to see that. We have, uh, in 2017, we had 23 every month um, of opioid-related deaths. And in uh, this year, we're at 17 um, uh, every, every month. And so the district has a, uh, an approach to this that uh, is age-specific. We know the demographic. We utilize the medical examiner data as well as our fire and EMS data to develop solutions. We're giving out 400 naloxone kits every month. Um, needle exchange is robust. Um, and so the work has to be focused on um, specific to the populations affected and understanding that the urban centers in this country are also facing this epidemic uh, in a way that's decimating families. Um, and so it's not just the young white man that's 20 to 40, um, it's the older black man that's 50 to 60. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fentanyl is seen as kind of the third wave of, the, of this epidemic. You had pills, you had heroin, you had fentanyl. You know, Regina, is there a fourth wave? And if so, what is it? Well, I don't know if, I, if I'm um, skilled enough to predict the fourth wave, but I'll tell you what I'm hearing. Uh, in states such as Kentucky, in a lot of rural areas, um, they're seeing a resurgence in methamphetamine. Uh, and they will say it's not a resurgence, it's always been there. But the, the issue is that we now have liquid uh, meth, and, and I'd be curious to see what you uh, think about this too, Chief. The, this is the bad news is we have a resurgence of, of liquid meth in these areas that is being injected. Now, the good news is in a state like Kentucky, they have 50 syringe service programs in that state. They are poised now to address that if they can pivot to the type of services that are needed for, because again, you know, you, the good thing about this is you call it a, the addiction uh, issue. It's because it's not, we need to make sure we're not only focusing on opioids and what the substance of the day is. Uh, so I think, uh, I think we're likely to see, uh, to con continue to see increases in methamphetamine and in the consequences relating to uh, the injection of meth. Uh, because we're, what we've seen is the manufacturing of meth is a little different than it was the last time we had uh, a lot more meth in this country. And, and so if there were a fourth wave, that's what I would say. And what are some of those consequences, um, you know, of, of meth, especially, you know, when they're used in concert with, with opioids, which we're seeing, I know, increasingly on the streets? So. Anyone? Oh, oh, I was going to say, you bring up a valid, a really good point, and part of that is that's why these collaborations are so important. Look, drugs are, there's an ebb and flow of drugs. We're not, we have never gotten rid of addiction. We're chasing one drug after another, and these collaborations are really important with health, with the federal government, with the streets, with the communities. That's why these collaborations are so important, with, especially when you're talking about needle exchange. Now, the next epidemic that comes along, we're better prepared than we were before. We're seeing a mixture of all kinds of drugs. We were talking about this before. Uh, there's some people, and here's the thing, it's not just one particular item. It is several things. So from some of the intelligence we get on the street, 
it is some people are worried about fentanyl and they don't want to die from the fentanyl. So they've been switching to the new crystal ice, methamphetamine, uh, crack cocaine or cocaine. There's some people who are speedballing it, and that was something that you did back in the 70s with heroin and cocaine. There are some drug dealers, now remember these aren't doctors, scientists, and pharmacists who will tell users, hey, if you don't want to die from fentanyl, use methamphetamine or cocaine and it'll counter those effects. So from our perspective, from the government side, it's really important that we remain flexible and vigilant because these items and these trends continue in this ebb and flow and are always changing. And drug dealers and cartels are always looking for the next more powerful drug that'll get people addicted and make more money. So synthetics is my big concern on the next drug wave. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I would add, I, I don't think it can go understated that um, we're really dealing with substance use disorder as a disease. And so what fuels individuals to decide to utilize drugs to dumb their own pain? And whether or not that's access to education, economics, housing, um, uh, criminal justice practices, whatever those upstream type of issues that make substance use a choice, is where public health has to work in that space. Um, and that's critically important as, as far as how drugs and what are the new drugs in, in, in what I see, and these are the deaths of individuals, um, it's always mixed drug toxicity. So we can talk about opioids and fentanyl, but the majority of them also have cocaine on board um, or PCP in the district, right? And so it's, it's Yes, there's specific things that we want to know about these substances and how to um, prevent and support the user because there's different profiles for the user. But we also have to realize um, that the substance use disorder construct is what we really need to be focusing on. One thought um, or two thoughts just to add to these wonderful points from my colleagues, but um, one is that drug use is all about geography and history. and um, humanity. And I think we need to understand a lot about the history. We don't see the same patterns of methamphetamine in some parts of the country that we do in others. And we see a lot more cocaine in, in some of those other communities that stimulants are there, but they take different forms. So really thinking as, um, as partners in law enforcement and public safety and public policy to really think about that, um, the importance of geography and how we may need to have some, some basic responses like naloxone and medications for addiction treatment that work across these and in contingency management and behavioral treatments that work for stimulants and opioid use disorder, and also think about um, the nuances of how we're going to reach those individuals. One thought, though, for fentanyl that's different is that fentanyl has a come, uh, another dimension that we're not really fully appreciating, and that is the contamination factor. That we need to think about the fact that fentanyl, because it's so small and can find its way in those same powders and pills, um, that we need to think about how to detect how to respond, how to communicate effectively to people who are using these other substances who unsuspectingly are taking them into their bodies um, and, and unfortunately seeing you. <laughs> um, so we need to think about how to communicate to people who use drugs and to communities um, to make sure that contamination, just like we have if it's a romaine lettuce outbreak, we need to be able to communicate and, and talk to the people who may be exposed because contamination and product safety and um, consumer safety is a component that's unique to fentanyl. You talk a little bit how, how you do that? Well, I'm hoping um, that we can think a little bit more on the harm reduction front. Um, some ways, um, simply, um, we may be able to 
as people are exposed to understand and look at our emergency department um, trends and toxicology tests that occur at that level, um, certainly at the medical examiner level, but it would even be better if people didn't have to be exposed to and experience these things that are negative. So we could learn how to test the drug supply, for instance. Um, there's emerging evidence about fentanyl drug testing, um, especially these fentanyl test strips, but also other machines that may be able to give us insight into the supply. How do they work? Do you kind of just stick it in the, if you're using, do you put it in the drugs and it shows up? Or? Yeah, there are a number of different um, techniques, but one in particular that's been um, uh, explored in the last couple months um, has been these very small test strips that look a little bit like a small piece of paper that you um, create um, a small solution with water and dilute a little bit of the powder or a pill to understand whether fentanyl is present. Um, but other techniques could be a machine that doesn't require handling. Um, so these kinds of ideas, and, and law enforcement actually uses many of these machines already, but public health doesn't, and nor do people who, um, who use drugs in the community on large scale. So these are new ways that we need to evolve, much like we are for the treatment uh, in environment, perhaps we need to be thinking about um, public safety, product safety, and um, better another collaboration between public health and public safety and innovations. So as we all know, this is obviously a national problem, but like you all said, the, the solutions tend to be very local and um, you know, each place needs to do something different. So Regina, you know, as someone who worked on the, on the federal level, we know Congress just passed a huge suite of bills before the election to address the opioid epidemic. How do you kind of, you know, a lot of that money is coming from the federal level. How do you kind of address it broadly, but also address it very locally and get people what they need? So the states, you know, have a lot of leeway on what they can spend the money on. Um, however, the um, the strategic, the SOR grants that are going out, it's for it's 1.5 billion that will what go does that out stand next for? year. Uh, the uh, strategic opioid response okay. grants. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so that money will go out next year, and and those uh, funds now must be tied to using medication. If you're going to use it for treatment, you have to provide medications. If you're going to get funded under these grants, now that's the first time. So um, so there's kind of a baseline that will be set that's been set by the federal government, and then the states can adapt it to the needs that the state has. Because as Tracy said, this is a, addiction is a geographic the drugs are geographically uh, distinct. And so every state really needs to decide uh, what it can do. The, the, the bottom line is, though, that the federal government and the states can have levers to make sure that the policies and programs that are put into place are science and evidence-based uh, to the best extent that they can, that they know what, what they're facing. Um, so the, the feds set the baseline and the states adapt to what's necessary. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I think that you hear from the entirety of the panel and that the federal government money it can be spent on, because there's more than just uh, funding coming from HHS, it's across the board, it's coming from Department of Labor, uh, USDA, et cetera, um, is that we have to I, continuously identify intervention points and not be afraid to look at the criminal justice system is an incredible opportunity to intervene with people who may have chronic substance use disorders. So that those intervention points exist along the entire continuum, and so that's what states and local governments have to look at. Mm -hmm. And you know, Dr. Mitchell, I'm going to talk to you about, you know, obviously this epidemic, the overdose deaths are, are skyrocketing. Um, you know, we're seeing the, the highest number that, we, that we've ever seen. We know that medical examiners have been overwhelmed. I did a story earlier this year, and I talked to someone in Summit County, Ohio, and 
quote was, you know, we are literally stacking bodies. Yeah. Um, you know, in West Virginia, they had, did not have enough room for bodies, and they had to have refrigerated trucks to keep all of the opioid overdose victims, um, you know, before they could do autopsies. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, how, you know, the, how, you know, med uh, medical examiners are overwhelmed, and in, in how you're trying to, to keep up with all of this. So yeah, so the, the medical exam medical legal death investigation system in this country is split between a medical examiner and a coroner system. Some systems are coroner systems and they tend to be elected or sheriff coroners. The other side is medical examiners. Those are appointed physicians, usually forensic pathologists like myself and my colleagues at the office. And the reality of it is, is that um, our standards of practice, because it is the practice of medicine, our standards of practice require us to keep a caseload, um, a, a particular caseload, about 250 cases per doctor per year. Uh, with this advent of the opioid epidemic, with this surge, uh, most medical examiner systems and coroners are inundated, as you described, and are losing their accreditation or being placed in provisional accreditation. And on top of that, unfortunately, there is a medical examiner shortage in this country. A lot of individuals aren't going into forensic pathology as their career choice. And so we're trying to work and, and, and create innovative ways to discuss how we can increase uh, the provision of these types of physicians um, and have these types of physicians go into this type of work so that we can deal with outbreaks like this um, and other outbreaks that we potentially will have in, in this country. Um, so it's, it's important, and, it, and fire and EMS are um, affected, and law enforcement are affected, and our, our, our public health system in general are affected, and um, most of all, our families are affected, right? Our loved ones are affected. Um, and because these individuals are sons and daughters, they're fathers and mothers, um, they're cousins. Um, and so uh, we can't lose track of each one case is a devastation to that family and that community. Um, and we work in as medical examiners, we work in it daily, and really are the unsung surrounding the work that we're doing on a daily basis um, in, in working in this epidemic. And it looks like we have a question from Laura on Twitter. Again, if you, you want to ask us questions, please do with the hashtag postlive. Um, Laura's question is, if you could have a set or points of data about this crisis, the addicts, the demographics, or other patterns that you currently don't have, what data would help you, would help you make the most impact in your work? Chief Sinan, I'll ask you that question. Yes, the non-scientist, the data question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we use data quite a bit, uh, and it was kind of strange because I was not a data guy until I got involved in this. And, and what we're using data for, and University of Cincinnati is probably on the forefront of this, they've been able to pinpoint much of not just overdoses or crime where it's impacted, but many of these social issues. And what they're doing is they took a, a county in Ohio and were able to figure out within a two block area was most of the issues. And it wasn't always necessarily robberies or thefts. What it was was their social issues with the domestic violence, economics, poverty. And they were able to bring in these social networks and, and allow them to come in and intervene. A lot of times law enforcement is looked at as the ones that solve this issue. And I'm going to say this, we're not the ones that are going to solve any epidemic. A matter of fact, it is time that we stop viewing addiction as a crime and start viewing it as the mental medical health condition it is. I don't know why I, the first responder, am the one that is trying to heal mental health or addiction or some of these other issues. I should be the link 
to these experts, and these experts should be the ones to handle this. I'm not trying to shove this on to other agencies, but we don't have the tools, resources, knowledge, or skills to do that. They do. Allow us to be that link, allow people to get uh, the care they need, and I think you would see what no matter, the data then would change. Mm -hmm. The data would change that we would have healthy systems, we would have healthy communities, and that's where we gotta get to. We gotta shift not just from data, and I caution data. Data doesn't tell the whole picture. There's a human side. And, and like the doctor said, it's really important that we never lose track that each one of those data points are a person. I've stood over the bodies of those people who have overdosed, and you said it exactly right. There is always a mother, father, brother, sister, son, daughter who stands next to me who will forever grieve that person. Never forget that that is not just a data point, it is a person. Bring those resources to the community, treat people like human beings, and I think we'll see a shift no matter what drug trend we're seeing. And as you said earlier, you know, this is not only affect, this is affecting generations, right? You have the foster care system is now overwhelmed from this. Um, you know, schools are, are dealing with this. I remember doing a, a reporting trip once and this teacher said, I, you know, I just watched a seven-year-old tell me how to properly shoot heroin because she saw them happen in the home, you know, mm -hmm. that this is really affecting, um, you know, just whole, the fabric of communities and families and, and lives. And, um, that's you know an important thing, and I think Tracy, you've been seeing that in Boston and Rhode Island as well through through your work, talking to you know talking to people who who are using and in their families as well. Yeah, in fact, um, both to respond to you as well as the the question from um, that had been coming to you, uh, I think that we may be missing an important data point from the voices of people who are using drugs. Mm -hmm. um, we hear sadly from from the decedents and from the emergency situations, um, from the arrests. Um, but we don't actually hear from the people who are actually surviving um, and navigating and figuring out how to take care of each other. Um, and we need to hear a little bit more about, um, about that because from them we can learn both um, resilience um, that uh, the Surgeon General spoke to at the individual level, but also at the community level. Mm -hmm. And those are important stories to be able to tell one another in times of crisis, but also it's important for us to catalog and make sure that we can respond and help um, give guidance to and provide extra services if we're me not meeting their needs. So that requires a different kind of surveillance, probably, a, and not the control surveillance, but rather the listening surveillance mm -hmm. of actually talking to people who use drugs. Um, if, if, if that's using ethnography, uh, another one of our sciences, um, that would be fantastic. But this is a component that's really missing from a lot of our national approaches. Mm -hmm. But some states, um, and I'm proud that Massachusetts is one of them, mm -hmm. is starting to do just that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right on point. So here in the district, um, as we developed our opioid strategic plan that will be published within the next two weeks um, uh, here online and here in the district, we pulled together a group of um, not only experts in the field and agencies, but also um, um, uh, survivors of, of, of their addiction uh, to talk about what the policy should look like in the District of Columbia, how we should be engaging uh, in a way that is meaningful um, for everyone involved. And so the voice of um, those that have been addicted cannot also be understated, and a lot of them also are the best substance use counselors, those individuals that are helping. So we do a lot of peer um, uh, communication. We utilize peers that, that have uh, been able to move from their addiction or on MAT or uh, medical assisted therapy to talk to their other peers about, the, about fentanyl, um, about heroin, and about uh, this opioid crisis that's happening in the district. Um, so that's, that's extremely important. 
Just to, uh, to be really specific in following up on Tracy's thread about uh, who we should get more information from, um, we don't have good surveillance on incarcerated populations nor for the homeless, for homeless populations, both of whom tend to have uh, a lot of people with substance use disorders. So those are very specific areas that we should be looking at. Um, and we just, is, is anyone, um, in, I know Chief Steinin, it seems like it affects the way that law enforcement works as well, you know, kind of more talking with people who are using and, and that sort of thing. Well, well, I'm considered this expert. I became this expert because I talk to people that are using on the street and we find out the drug trends from them. It is a very important uh, segment of society. And to us, uh, I value their opinion because they tell me what's on the street. They tell me the trends. Uh, they tell me what to expect. And, and you're seeing a shift in, from law enforcement, not only with that health side, but there was a time when I, I've been stuck twice by needles. And now when, I, when my officers go out there, they just had someone who accidentally, luckily the cap was on. And that person was so apologetic and said, look, I know there's fentanyl on the street. I know hepatitis C and HIV. I don't want you being impacted by it. So you're starting to see this mesh, not just from the upper levels, not just from the system, but you're starting to see this mesh with law enforcement and those that are using. You know, unfortunately, it took over 70,000 people in America to die for us to shift our opinion on this. Mm. I hope that we do not go backwards and that we use this to go forward and that we take this view no matter what the drug is, no matter who the person is, or no matter what the addiction is, and move forward and change how we view and deal with addiction forever. Fortunately, that is actually all the time we have. That went very quickly. So I want to thank uh, Tracy Green, Regina LaBelle, um, Tom Sinan, and Dr. Mitchell for joining us. So um, thank you all for, for being here and, and tuning in. And um, we really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.